Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is Episode 9. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. Today, I have Chapter 8 of Outcast for your listening pleasure. As always, this episode will be cross-posted on the original Outcast podcast feed. And if you're listening to this here, I encourage you to subscribe to the new show at feeds.feedbrenner.com slash kickinthecast. And with that said, let's get to Chapter 8 of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 8 I couldn't remember going back to my dwelling. I had no memory in between kneeling before the grave I'd dug outside and waking up on my mat before a now-dead fire. Absently, I moved to pull my shirt tighter around me to stave off the growing chill in the air, only for my arms to react painfully due to last night. That sobering thought made my eyes snap open and the fog lift from my mind. I sat up on the mat and looked around the dwelling. Gray light poured in from the two windows, and I could hear the incessant rain pouring down outside. It made the air that much colder, and I made for the fireplace as quickly as I could. It didn't take too long before I had a good-sized fire going, dimly aware that I didn't remember taking any wood in the night before. Strange. Soon my body began to warm up and the shivers stopped but there was no fire hot enough to chase away the cold, empty feeling in my soul. I could still see the Shatliya dragging his blade across their necks. I could still hear them begging, crying as their lives slowly drained away from them. The look on that Rondoki's muzzle when he did it. He enjoyed it. He took pleasure from ending those kittens' lives. The look in his eyes as he taunted me saying that he could do whatever he wanted as he carried out those executions. The memory of it only reignited the anger within me. I shut my eyes to drive the images from my mind, but like any bad thought you want to banish, the harder you try, the more it hangs on. The frustration at not being able to save them was overwhelming. I wanted revenge more than ever at that point. But not for me. For them. My own exile story felt irrelevant to me now. All I could think of was seeking out that group of Shatlia and feeding them a beatdown unlike any they'd ever experienced. I wanted them to be begging for their mothers at the end. I wanted to hear them pleading for mercy as I held their lives in my hands. I wanted to make them feel as powerless as those kittens had been. The only question was, well, how? Alone, I wouldn't stand a chance against them, but I was willing to bet a few of those gangbangers I met in Junktown would be up for it. It wasn't what I'd originally wanted for myself, to become one of them, but if it served my purpose and I could learn from them, maybe it would be best for me. It wouldn't be that tough to join, I thought. I'd already proven myself strong enough. Ethically, there were probably some things I'd have to work at, but if it came down to a matter of survival... I was sure I could do whatever it took, even if it meant taking someone else's life. The thought of returning to Junktown and finding a gang with which to hook up both excited and terrified me. 
To become someone like that was to kiss goodbye any chance at coming home again. All the documentaries and news reports that my father and grandfather would watch on the telescreen told me that once you were in a gang, it became your life. You lived and died by the laws of the gang, nothing else. It was a lot like life in the clans, except for the prestige, money, and status. In truth, life as a gang member didn't appeal to me. They preyed on the innocent just like the Chatelier had, so what made them any better? Granted, for them, killing accomplished a goal, not terrorized a group of already complacent people. Still, I couldn't see myself bashing someone's skull in just to pull a few credits off them for a new pair of shoes. It just wasn't me. I felt my heart sink again. From where I was sitting, I had no options. The Serval's death would go unavenged, and the clans would never recover the Kalpak, all because I'd lost control of my life to the winds of fate. All seemed hopeless. Then, in a heartbeat, everything changed. The door suddenly burst open, and on instinct I rolled into a fighting stance. Granted, it wasn't much, but it was all I knew. It took my mind a full second to recognize what was standing in the doorway, and another second for the fear to start settling in. In the doorway to my dwelling stood what was quite possibly the largest feral tiger I'd ever seen. Its shoulders came up as high as my chest, though its height was the last thing on my mind at the time. Its eyes glowed a brilliant, demonic green, and they regarded me with a look that had me beginning to shake. Its mouth was open slightly, giving me but a hint at the powerful teeth within. I stood transfixed as it slowly padded into my dwelling. My nose crinkled slightly at the smell of wet fur combined with its wild musk. That verdant gaze never left me, even as it took a moment to shake off the excess water it had picked up from the outside. The heat from the fire was all but forgotten, and in its place was a spike of fear so cold, the harshest of winter days seemed warm by comparison. Were it not for the eyes, I would have figured this feral was a wandering beast looking for shelter from the rain. However, that glowing gaze made me remember story after story about the large feral animals who wandered the world. Some believed that these weren't animals at all, but instead members of an ancient sect one believed to have started not long after our kind's rise to dominance on this world so many millennia ago. The sect was known as the Beast Walkers, the Lautari. These beings were a legend known the world over. Legends told that, long ago, the Lautari had learned the secret of total body control. Through meditation, discipline, and a martial arts regimen rumored to be deathly strict, they had mastered the art of the shift an event in which their evolved form is cast away and they assume a form dating back to the earliest times. Perhaps it was this ability that led the first Terran visitors to Mingalus to refer to us as Rakshasas. Apparently, one's ability to assume another shape once carried some mythical significance on Earth. I couldn't describe in mere words what I felt like at that moment. It was fear, wonder, and excitement all at once to think I was looking at a Lautari. Despite this, though, I kept my fighting stance. Just because one meets a legend doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Faced with another riddle, are you? That it spoke wasn't what bothered me so much. 
What made the hackles on the back of my neck stand straight up was the fact that I recognized both the voice and the scent now that the overbearing odor of his wet fur had somewhat abated. But now, you have no answers, do you? No. There is no easy solution for you now. Who are you? I asked. Why are you here? You have committed a great sin, cub. He growled. For what you did last night, the clans could burn you at the stake. You knew such a travesty would surely invite the wrath of the patrons themselves upon you, yet you still buried those three exiles. I would know why. Because they deserve some dignity, I said with a wavering voice. Why? he asked. They were exiles, like you. No, they were kittens. They didn't deserve what happened to them. And do you think by burying them that the patrons would forgive them? He asked. Who are you to judge the actions of their parents? By clan law, it was their right to condemn them, regardless of their age. They didn't deserve it. Now I was getting angry. How do you know that? Because all they did was miss their curfew. They told you this? I nodded. And how can you trust their words, hmm? What makes you think they were telling the truth about their exile? Because they screamed when they died, I shouted. They cried for their mother, their father, anyone to save them, and only an innocent would do that. The feral didn't stop pacing, but I sensed a decrease in his aggression towards me. I was breathing hard by this point. Why was this thing in my dwelling taunting me about this? What did he care about the goings-on of an exile like me? Unless he was here for more than just conversation. So, he said, you buried them, thinking that by such an act they would somehow be vindicated? That was absurd. According to clan law, there were protocols that an exile had to follow before they could come back. A mere burial after death did nothing but cause the gravedigger to be in trouble. No, I... Every action requires a reason, cub, he said. He stopped pacing and was now sitting before me, effectively blocking any kind of escape. Action without reason is madness, and you are not mad. So tell me, why did you bury those three kittens? Funny thing about realizations. Until you put them into words, the true impact of them never really hits you. That was how it was with me at that moment. For the first time since I'd defied the law of the patrons, I finally realized why. All the anger, all the growing frustration that had been brewing within me finally faded away, leaving behind that one diamond-hard gem of truth. The moment I spoke it, it all made perfect sense. Because I failed them. I sunk to my knees and bowed my head, finally taking my gaze away from the feral. I tried to save them, but I couldn't. All my newfound strength and I couldn't even stop some sadistic pakla from murdering three kittens. I buried my muzzle in my hands, trying not to break down in front of this creature, but failing miserably. The truth finally forms, he said, his voice now gentle. You were inviting the wrath of the patrons upon you. You wanted to be punished in their stead. 
I nodded slowly, now facing the feral once again. His eyes had stopped glowing, and I could see that they were a hazel color. Everything I've ever known is gone, I choked. Nothing makes sense to me anymore. I can't live like this. I rose to my feet and hung my head. If you were sent here to end me, then do so, I said. I won't fight it. You would choose death so willingly? The feral asked. I can't do anything anymore, I said. I can't even think of avenging those kittens, or myself. I've alienated myself from just about everyone, clansmen and exile alike, so why even try? The feral sat there and looked at me. A long silence passed between the two of us, and I felt myself beginning to shiver. Part of it was from the cold, but part of it was also from the anticipation. I was waiting for that split second where he would tense up just before leaping at me. My mind and body were going over how it would feel to have his weight crash into me and how his fangs would feel sinking into my neck, drawing my blood and ending my life. The more I thought about it, the more the adrenaline was beginning to flow. I began wondering what was taking him so long. Was he waiting for me to say something, or just waiting to draw this out even more? I'd offered him my life, yet he seemed reluctant to take it. He closed his eyes, and my own beheld something very few had ever seen. Contrary to the myths surrounding the Lautari, there were no glowing auras or sounds of chanting when the shift occurred. All I could hear was ragged breathing, the odd crack of a bone, and the faint meaty sound as muscles contracted and reshaped themselves. In truth, it was fascinating, if a bit macabre. The notion that he was naked was the furthest thing from my mind when he stood up. Wide-eyed, I merely stared at him as he approached me and extended his right hand. My name is Karasatlak, he said. I have an offer for you. I took his hand and he shook mine slowly. Your strength is obvious, he said, running a hand down my left arm. But you lack the precision to effectively use that strength. I also sense that you have a good heart, Dallin. You could never kill without conscience, even if your opponent didn't deserve mercy. He poked me in the chest. You have potential, and you of all people deserve the chance to realize it. Why me? I asked. I could scarcely believe what I was hearing. Because any cub who would try as you have is worthy of it, he replied. You fought against four armed brigands to protect the Kalpak from their grasp. And failed, I added. And then you defied all rationality by trying to spare three kittens from a grisly fate. And failed again. This was starting to get humiliating. Yes, you failed because you are young, said the tiger. Inexperience is the fatal flaw in youth, Dallin. No child your age should ever have hoped to defeat those thieves. Nor could anyone expect you to take on a handful of Shatlia and live. Yet here you are, and that tells me there is more to your destiny than that which you see before you now. If you accept my offer, I will show you the precision you need. I will hone your body into a shape and form the likes of which the clans only see in their darkest dreams. You will become one of very few, Dallin, and yours will be the legacy of legend.
A peal of thunder sounded outside, as if Latin, the patron of weather, was purposely trying to set the mood. I couldn't believe what Crossa was saying. He wanted me. He was inviting me to become one of the Lautari. I could learn an art older than the clans, or even the warlords. In time, I would pass it along to others. I could become a true predator in this society of ignorant bliss. The very prospect of achieving such a thing made my heart pound. I felt the electricity in the air as my spirits began to lift. The next two words I spoke almost came out as a purr, mainly because the thought of the retribution I was going to visit upon those murdering Chatelier was just oh so delicious. I accept. I am not your master. I am your teacher. Every task you are assigned from me will serve the purpose of education. I trudged through the rain, cold and getting hungry as I made my way back to Junktown. It always amazed me just how one's spirits can rise so high, only to fall from said height and come crashing down. He said everything he would have me do would be in the interest of education. In one way, I suppose the situation I was in was a good test of endurance, or tolerance of the elements. Either that, or this was all part of the next thing he said to me after I learned the first lesson. Now, you will return to Junktown and to the Foundation's warehouse. You will apologize to Cyrus and offer your services to him, whatever that may entail. If he is satisfied with you, he will give you something that would lead you back to me. This is your second lesson, Dallin. Humility. I was positive now that the patrons had spared my life the night before just so they could put me through this. Humility? More like humiliation. After my little outburst the night before, it wouldn't have surprised me to find those two guards standing at the doorway, guns leveled at me and telling me to leave. Still, for what going through this could earn me, scarfing down a few slices of humble pie was more than worth it. On the way back to the warehouse, I had time to think about the events of the past day. Mother and father always said I had a good memory, but for the life of me I couldn't remember stumbling into my dwelling in the middle of the night. Moreover, I had no recollection of bringing in an armload of wood just so I could get a fire going the next morning. I thought, sardonically, that I had a guardian angel looking out for me, though I couldn't figure out why. I'd broken one of the most sacred laws of the patrons the night before. What kind of divine power would find that amusing? Remember what I said about realization? The logical destination of my last thought nearly made me trip up with its impact. Were my stomach not so empty at the time, I would have probably retched for a good hour, thinking that by defying the patrons, I was playing right into the hands of the Dark One, the Lord of the Seven Hells himself. By the time I reached Junktown, I was shivering, and not just from the cold. My mind was now racing with memories of all that had happened to me. Had everything I'd gone through since the night of the Kumal been by design? Had the Dark One orchestrated all this? Admittedly, the plot was typical for any holy parable out there, regardless of your religious beliefs. Nearly every religion in the galaxy has the same story of a devil or demon as being one who strikes a bargain with you. In the short term, you get what it is you want, but in the end, your eternal soul is damned. 
Bengalan religion is no different in that respect than any other. I leaned up against the wall of an old factory building and sighed heavily. Why? Why me? What was so damn special about me that I'd be a target like this? I'd been a good cub up until now. I'd always stayed out of trouble, and never crossed mother or father. Why would the patrons see fit to throw me to the wild like this? Religion and rationality began to battle each other in my mind as the rain continued to fall all around me. My beliefs were screaming that accepting Cross's offer would be akin to selling my soul to the darkness, but the rational side of me claimed that the ways of the Lautari far outdated any writings or philosophies from the patrons. So, did the patrons have any right to condemn something so ancient? To that end, weren't the patrons supposed to protect the righteous, too? Wasn't it their covenant with the clans to keep them safe in the face of all adversity? Where were they when I needed them? What about those three kittens I'd buried the night before? Rationality was quickly gaining ground on religion by this point. Had Kayon really been watching me, something would have happened that night a year ago to keep me safe from my attackers. If he genuinely cared about what happened to me in this life, he would have intervened before Father had swung that sword, wouldn't he? Wouldn't the patrons have saved those three kittens too? Were they that heartless? Were they even watching? My confusion was short-lived thanks to that last thought. The growing anger inside soon quieted the constant questioning in my mind. I would have my answers in time, but for the moment, survival was the main priority. I had to make it back to the Foundation and, if necessary, grovel at Cyrus's feet for his forgiveness. For better or for worse, what Krasa had, I needed. No, I wanted. I didn't care if it was sacrilege anymore. As an exile, I would die alone and worthless. But as a Lautari, I could live. More than that, I could thrive. I let a low, rumbling growl of determination escape my throat as I pushed off from the building and headed towards the warehouse. As before, I kept my eyes, ears, and whiskers trained for any movement or change in the electricity in the air. Thankfully, the rain seemed to be keeping everyone inside this time. I was thankful for that. The last thing I needed was running into those goons again when I was so close to redemption. At last, I could see the warehouse ahead of me, and I quickened my pace. I was tired and cold, but knowing the warmth that lay just beyond those doors seemed to re-energize me. Once I spotted the place, it felt as though getting there took no time at all, and before I knew it, I was pushing that door open and staring into the barrels of two shotguns. In retrospect, I guess I should have knocked first. Hold it right. Oh, it's you, said the panther. I could tell by the tone in his voice that he was less than impressed to see me again. However, he was gracious enough to lower his weapon. Here to bury more of us? I looked past the two guards and noticed Cyrus standing there. I found it odd that he was there until I noticed he was carrying what looked like two mugs of steaming hot tea. He must have been bringing them out for the guards when I made my less-than-impressive entrance. I was about to smile at him when I noticed the look on his muzzle. He was about as impressed to see me as the other two. 
I... No, I said. I felt like Cyrus just caught me with my hand in the proverbial cookie jar. My mother notwithstanding, no one could make me feel like this with just a look, and Cyrus was pulling it off masterfully. I was beginning to get the feeling that I wasn't the first exile he'd had to straighten out. I... I came to apologize, I finally said, wishing I were somewhere else. Apologize? he asked. Well, go on then. I'm sorry I acted the way I did, I said. I had no right to be angry at you or anyone else. I looked straight at the old cougar, fighting down the urge to look away from that stern look. You're the first person who showed me any kindness since all this happened, and I'm sorry I returned that kindness with so much anger. Whatever I can do to make it up to you, I will. He continued to stare at me, his expression not changing in the slightest. I did my best to do the same. I genuinely wanted things to be clear between us, but I also knew the reward for regaining his friendship. For that, I was sure I'd do anything. So, he said after what felt like an eternity, if I told you the only way we'd be square is for you to go in there, stand on a table, and apologize to everyone, you'd do it? I nodded, hopefully not too quickly. You realize you'd be lying though, right? What? You don't get this old without listening, kid, he said. You want to be square with me, and that I believe. But you're still hot at the rest of them for doing nothing, right? His expression hadn't changed, and suddenly all the anticipation of training as a Lautari faded away. He knew. He knew I could never apologize to those people in there and truly mean it. At best, it would be a thin one, designed to placate everyone so that I could continue with my life. It would be as worthless as some of them were. With a sigh, I shook my head. You're right, I said. Either it's too soon, or it'll never happen. Cyrus, I'm sorry for being angry with you, and I'm sorry that I caused such a scene. I mean that. But if us being square means I go in there and lie to everyone else then I truly am sorry because I can't do it. I turned to go, but suddenly felt a hand on my shoulder. I looked back and saw that it belonged to the panther. His gun now hung limply in his other hand, and the expression he bore made him look like he was on the verge of breaking down. It was a bit of a surprise, given that at first, he didn't look capable of showing any emotion at all. Open or closed? he asked. Sorry? Their eyes. Open or closed? Closed, I replied, still not fully understanding the meaning. Before I buried them, I made sure that their eyes were closed. I recalled the serene looks on their muzzles as I made sure to arrange them properly. Going soft on us, Nath? The bobcat asked. The panther looked over at the bobcat and snarled. This ain't about going soft, he said. This kid's got more heart than anyone in there, he pointed towards the inner door. No one in there gives a damn about anything outside their own little world. They'd roll you in your sleep if you had what they wanted, but not him, he jerked a thumb back to me. Anyone who'd give an ounce of what he gave those kids at the end is cool with me. 
The bobcat looked like he was trying to work his mind over what his partner had said. I wondered if they had been in the military together. Had they fought in the Lakayan Civil War? I was only four when it began, and even though most of the fighting was over, that entire country was still on edge. My brother, or rather, former brother, Richard, was born the day the war ended. Finally, I saw the bobcat nod, and it was the kind of nod that came from wisdom far deeper than I understood. To me, closing their eyes before burying them seemed the proper thing to do. Did it have another kind of significance? I was curious, but at the time I thought better of asking either of them what it meant. Someday, I wanted to talk to them candidly about it. When the bobcat looked back at me with a relaxed expression, I finally realized that I hadn't been breathing for close to a minute. So good, Cyrus, he said. So good. Cyrus looked at me, and I saw his face soften too. That smile he'd flashed the day before was back on his muzzle where it belonged. You hungry, son? he asked. As usual, my stomach did the talking for me. He chuckled and gestured with his head towards the inner doors. Come on, he said. Let's get you fixed up. And that's our story. Originally, Nath was a little more than a bit player in Dallin's overall arc. However, as I've been working behind the scenes on Outcast's sequel, I realized that there was a place to actually work on his character. I'm sure in time we'll be seeing more of him and getting more into his history. So, we're getting close to episode 10 of this show. Despite a couple of weeks where I didn't air an episode on time, I'm pretty proud of this. I've worked as a guest host on other podcasts, but for those, I wasn't responsible for much more than sitting in front of my microphone and spouting off. It's been fun and challenging to be my own editor, producer, and the like for this show. It's given me a sense of focus in what's been, let's face it, one hell of a year so far. 2020 seems to be the very demonstration of the old phrase, may you live in interesting times. So I think I'll end it here. Thank you all once again for tuning in. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please feel free to do so at feeds.feedrunner.com slash kickinthecast. If you'd like to leave any feedback, my email address is outcastnovel at gmail.com, and you can also use the SpeakPipe feature at the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.